When 67-year-old Russell Herman died in 1994, his will included a staggering set of bequests. Included in his plan for distribution was more than $2 billion for the city of East St. Louis, another billion and a half for the state of Illinois, two and a half billion for the national forest system, and to top off the list, Herman left $6 trillion to the government to help pay off the national debt. It sounds amazingly generous, right? But here's the problem. Herman's only asset when he died was a 1983 Oldsmobile. He made grand pronouncements, but there was no real generosity involved. His promises were meaningless because there was nothing to back them up. True generosity isn't determined by our words, but rather by our actions, particularly in how we use our time and our money. Our faithfulness to the way of Jesus is not determined by how passionately we sing Christmas carols or hymns, but whether our lives actually reflect the things that we sing about in these songs. I once had a seminary professor tell me that Christians don't tell lies as often as they sing lies. Do we sweetly sing away in a manger of the little baby who had no crib for a bed while standing against those in real life who have no bed because they're homeless or refugees or asylum seekers? Do we sing, O holy night, and declare, Chain shall he break, for the slave is our brother, and in his name all oppression shall cease, while championing systems and structures that increase oppression? Do we sing songs like Joy to the World and Hark the Herald Angels Sing, praising Emmanuel, God with us, while dismissing the fact that God chose to come to earth as a member of a poor family near the bottom of the socioeconomic scale in a backwater town? Our words mean nothing if there aren't tangible actions to back them up. We've reached the final Sunday of Advent, a Sunday whose theme is love as was demonstrated by the reading uh, and the candle that we lit at the beginning of the service. Through the previous three Sundays of Advent, we've discussed worshiping fully, spending less, and giving more. And today we cap off the Advent Conspiracy series with the final tenet, love all. Love is the foundation of all that we do and all that we celebrate at Christmas time. It was because of love that God sent his son to earth in the first place. It was because of love that Jesus Christ left the glory of heaven to be born in an animal stable. And this wasn't just a love for the rich and powerful, not just a love for those who were citizens of the right country, not just a love for those of the correct religion, but a love for all people. If we want to be faithful to the meaning of Christmas, if we want to make the Christmas season meaningful in our lives, we must focus on this tenet of loving all. I think it's important for us to remember that Jesus came to earth not as a rich ruler, not even as a middle class type of guy, but rather as a poor person. We know that Mary and Joseph were poor because uh, the offering they gave at Jesus' presentation at the temple was the offering that was prescribed for the poor. It's important to remember that uh, Jesus and his family very quickly became refugees, having to flee to Egypt because of Herod's persecution. It's important to remember that as an adult, Jesus was homeless. He told a would-be follower, Foxes have dens to live in and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to even lay his head. 
It's important to remember that Jesus was a victim of injustice at the hands of the legal system. He was a victim of police brutality, even though he did nothing to resist. He was put through an unfair trial with a biased jury. He was wrongfully convicted and sentenced to death at the hands of the government. Now, why am I talking about all of this in connection with Christmas and the tenet of loving all? We've been talking about the incarnation, God becoming flesh, about Emmanuel, God coming to be with us. And we would be remiss if we didn't focus on the kind of person that God was when he became flesh. The kind of experience, uh, experiences to which he chose to subject himself. He could have had the life of a king or a government leader or a respected religious leader. But he chose to come and have the types of experiences that I just detailed a minute ago. And by doing that, he chose to identify himself with those whose life situations had dealt with similar experiences. He chose to identify with the oppressed and the marginalized and the downtrodden. He chose to identify with those who were most in need. So given this, it's not surprising that Jesus told his followers that the way we treat those who are most in need is the way that we're treating him. Jesus said, the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you invited me into your home. I was naked and you gave me clothing. I was sick and you cared for me. I was in prison and you visited me. I tell you the truth, when you did it for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you were doing it to me. Then the king will turn to those on his left and say, Away with you, you cursed ones, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his demons. For I was hungry and you didn't feed me. I was thirsty and you didn't give me a drink. I was a stranger and you didn't invite me into your home. I was naked and you didn't give me clothing. I was sick and in prison and you didn't visit me. I tell you the truth, when you refused to do it to help the least of these my brothers and sisters, you were refusing to help me. That's a pretty intense picture of eternal destinies being decided by whether or not we choose to help the least of these. But this is consistent with Jesus' entire life and all of his teachings. After all, he said that the greatest commandments were to love God and to love our neighbors. And when he was asked what it meant to love God and love our neighbors, Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan. Pastor Phil already read the story for us this morning, but let me just give a quick recap. A Jewish law expert asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? And Jesus told this story in response. A Jewish man gets badly beaten, robbed, and left for dead on the side of the road. A priest saw him lying there, totally ignored him, and walked on by. A temple assistant walked over, looked at the man, saw him, but then just walked by. Then a Samaritan saw the man. And he stopped, he gave him first aid, he brought him to an inn and took care of him, and then he paid to have the man taken care of going forward. Jesus then asked the law expert who had been a neighbor to the man who had been beaten. And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus responded, yes, now go and do the same. Now, you have to understand the dynamic between Jews and Samaritans in the first century. 
Jews considered Samaritans to be half-breeds, a lesser than race, a completely different nationality who followed a false religion because they worshipped God in a different place than the, the Jews thought was the right place to worship. Jews hated Samaritans so much that they would usually not even walk through Samaritan lands when they traveled, choosing instead to take a long and circuitous route around the lands so that they didn't debase themselves by coming in contact with Samaritan land. Yet when the Jewish man in the story needed help, it wasn't the pure-blooded representatives of the same religion who stopped to help him, but a man of a different race and a different religion who our translation says was despised. I can almost imagine the crowd booing and snickering when the Samaritan was introduced in this story. But the story took a drastic turn as Jesus detailed how the Samaritan gave first aid and brought the man to the inn where he would receive care, and the Samaritan promised to pay the man's medical bills. To put it in a modern context, it wasn't a pastor or a church employee who stopped to help a beaten American Christian, but rather a Middle Eastern Muslim. The people listening to Jesus' story would have been outraged by the depiction of the Samaritan as the hero and the religious leaders as the heels, as I'm sure some are by my comparison to church employees and a Muslim. But this would have been unfathomable for the Jews who would have believed that a Samaritan was more likely to be the one to assault and rob the man than to be the one to give aid to someone who had been nearly killed by robbers. This is a powerful message that we must love our neighbor and everyone, regardless of race, nationality, religion, gender, etc., is our neighbor. Everyone is our neighbor. Love all. Followers of Christ are reminded that we're to be loving, caring neighbors to everyone. Only in demonstrating the love of God for all people, especially those in need, are we truly following Jesus. So who's our neighbor? For whom are we to love and care? Anyone who is in need, who's in our path. This idea of responding to the needs of all people with love is a tall order. I don't know about you, but I look around at all the crap happening in the world, and I sometimes feel pretty overwhelmed and paralyzed and helpless to do anything meaningful in the vast scope of the suffering. How can we know this world as it is, so full of oppression and suffering, and still make the choice to love this world enough to work towards the world as it should be? In his book, Visions of Vocation, Stephen Garber tells the story of his friend Clydette, who was a physician and formerly an instructor at Harvard Medical School. But then she left that position to take the post as the physician overseeing all U.S. tuberculosis programs throughout the world with USAID. She came to visit Garber one Christmas and told of all the unfathomable suffering that she had seen around the world. And she just kept repeating the phrase, it was so outrageous. Garber writes, I remember her words because the contrast was so stark. Christmas glory and the greatest grief. How do you hold both in your heart? As I listened to Clydette, I wondered how she could know what she knew and still choose to love her work and the world. Will you be able to know the world as my friend Clydette knows it and still choose to love it? 
That's the question that lies before us this Christmas. Will we be able to know the world and still make the choice to love it? Or will we look at the outrageous injustices in the world and ignore them and pass over to the other side of the road and keep going because we're too preoccupied, because we just can't bring ourselves to get involved? Will we see the pain and suffering in the world and cross over to the other side of the road like the priest and the temple assistant? Or will we see the pain and suffering and choose to do something about it like the Samaritan did? There's no question that the amount of need in the world today is overwhelming. But we can't allow the fact that we can't do everything to prevent us from doing anything. The day that the Good Samaritan rescued that man, there were other people in the world who needed to be rescued, who needed medical treatment, who needed food and water. The Good Samaritan could not help everyone in the world who needed to be helped that day. But he didn't allow that fact to stop him from helping the individual that he could help that day. French philosopher Simone Weil saw in the story of the Good Samaritan a lesson that we must learn to pay attention to the things that truly matter. It's only when we pay attention to the things that matter that we can truly love. The Samaritan paid attention to what was front of, in front of him, and therefore he was able to respond to the needs of someone who needed help. The priest and temple assistant hadn't learned to pay attention to that which matters. That doesn't mean that they completely missed the man half dead lying on the side of the road, that they were completely oblivious to his presence and his plight. They saw the man, but they didn't see a neighbor. They didn't see someone whom they were required to love. They only saw a little piece of flesh, naked and bleeding in a ditch on the side of the road. He was nameless. They didn't know anything about him. They passed by and scarcely noticed, and a few minutes afterward, they didn't even know that they had seen the man. They were probably busy thinking about their priorities, where they had to be, what they had to do, what they had to buy with the money in their pockets. They hadn't learned to pay attention to what matters most. But the Samaritan had learned to pay attention, and his loving response is the natural result of learning to pay attention to the needs of those whom life put in his path. Weil wrote of the Good Samaritan, only one stops and turns his attention toward it. The actions that follow are just the automatic effect of this attention. This is true at least if it is pure. The man accepts to be diminished by concentrating on an expenditure of energy which will not extend his own power, but will only give existence to a being other than himself. In other words, the Samaritan knew that caring for the man who had been beaten wouldn't benefit himself at all. In fact, it would cost him time and effort and money. But he was paying attention to what was most important. And so he sacrificed in order to help the man. So as we seek to love all, we should pay attention. Who is in the path of our daily life that God is telling us to help? What issues grab hold of our heart and our soul and demand our response? What stories do we see and we're just unable to look away from because we're so moved with compassion? 
If there's nothing in your life that makes you feel this way, you might have to ask God to help you pay closer attention to whom you should be loving. Let me conclude with this quote from the authors of the Advent Conspiracy. Christmas is our chance to move closer to those in crisis, not further away. It's our time to notice those who are normally ignored. In short, it's our turn to love as we have been loved. In practical terms, our love must include caring for the poor in our midst. At Christmas, one of the things that should distinguish a Christ follower is a love that reaches out to the hungry and thirsty and sick and imprisoned. Such giving is an act of true worship. And so, friends, may we not just love with words like Russell Herman, who promised a bunch of philanthropic funds, but had nothing to back it up. Instead, let us give of our time, money, and effort to the least of these, to those who are most in need. Let us pay attention to the things that matter so that we don't leave half-dead victims lying in the ditches of life. Let us know the world and love it enough that we work to make it the world that it should be. Let us do all we can to love all. Father, you are love itself, and you've loved us with an everlasting love. You've called us your beloved children, and you've given us an example to follow as we walk in the way of your love. Show us that way, Father. Keep us from envy and boasting and pride and selfishness. Make us slow to anger and quick to forgive. Remind us to protect, to trust, to hope, to persevere. Forgive us when we fail at this, Lord, as we know that we're an insufficient vessel on our own. Remind us often that the ability to love like you comes only from your Holy Spirit within us. We need you, Holy Spirit, to inspire and encourage and enable us to love in this counterintuitive, refreshing, and sacrificial way. Bring glory to your name by helping us to love all without hesitation without qualifiers, without requirements. Let us love the weak and the strong, the rich and the poor, our friends, our enemies, and those who are far from you. Make us merciful and kind, compassionate and attentive. Help us to be less consumed with our own agenda and more open to interruption so that we may love with presence as you did for all humanity and still do for us each day. Let us see your image in every human being with the eyes that reflect only your love. Let us be the embodiment of the love of Jesus Christ to all those who cross our path, so that in us they may see you. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who is alive and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.